This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. At Westminster Seminary, California, our primary mission is to prepare men for pastoral ministry. This has been our primary mission since 1980. We have had more than 1,100 graduates, about 70% of whom go on to pastoral ministry. Indeed, some of our earliest graduates had been preaching God's Word, visiting the sick, and meeting with elders for more than 30 years. Bill Godfrey is one of our graduates, graduating in 2010. He's also a graduate of Trinity Christian College and McGeorge School of Law, University of the Pacific. He's a member of the State Bar of California, and he's pastor of Grace United Reformed Church in Torrance. And he joins us now to talk about his life after seminary and as a pastor. Hi, Bill, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. I guess the obvious question before we get to other things is, what is it like to grow up Godfrey? And would it make a good reality TV show? Um, It probably would make a good reality TV show, my sister being the star. Um, (laughs) It was wonderful to grow up Godfrey. Enjoyed my family very much and been around the seminary my whole life, which is a wonderful thing to both see it outside as a family member and inside as a student. So it's been a real blessing to grow up Godfrey, I suppose. And now you're back participating in the life of the seminary by contributing to a course on the pastoral ministry seminar. That's right. Yeah. Howell Jones, Dr. Jones asked me to do just a little bit, even when I was in seminary on youth work. And that blossomed into five hours of that class as he had me trying to give an American context to the ministry. He said he kind of felt like he couldn't really speak to the American context. So I did that for him for a few years. And then when Dennis Johnson took over the class, then he asked me to continue to teach those same hours on uh, congregational care and nurture. We laugh about, you know, growing up Godfrey. Your dad's obviously well-known and has been involved with this seminary since the very beginning. But behind that is a reality that you grew up in a faithful covenant home. That's right. And that's something that a lot of our students— or not all of our students have experienced being raised in a house with two parents, godly parents who, as we say in our circles, attended to the due use of the ordinary means, that is, attended church every uh, Lord's Day, not just in the morning, but in the evening, and made sure that you learned catechism, took you to Sunday school, sent you to Christian school, and uh, did all of those things. As a pastor now, looking back at the way you were raised, what kinds of differences are you seeing with, say, the rising generations? Well, in my pastoral context in Torrance, there are a lot fewer people who have been raised in a Reformed church who've had that experience their whole lives. And so they've come to the Reformed church by choice. And that's a a wonderful perspective to have. It has its positives and its drawbacks in that you don't know what it is to be part of a Reformed church. You know, when I first started as a pastor, they said, you know what it is to be Reformed. You're going to help us to be Reformed. So that's kind of a challenge and a responsibility on my part ministering there. But I have the advantage of having grown up in a Reformed church and seeing that. And so I benefited very much from that experience and learned from good pastors all my growing up. I was able to see Reformed church life and Reformed pastors, not only preaching God's word faithfully, but being in and among their families. Saw godly elders doing home visits at home, asking me how school was going, how catechism was going. And I think that's all 
been part of the preparation for ministry to be a part of a Reformed church all my life. But I think there's a lot of people that come to Reformed churches nowadays attracted by the doctrines of salvation, the doctrines of grace, but really having a very low knowledge of what a Reformed church is, what the responsibilities they have as members, what we see as the blessings of a church life, the importance of the means of grace, the importance of being part of a household of faith that offers us opportunities to carry one another's burdens and also offers us that security of when we are the burdens who need to be born, the church is there to carry us as well. One of the biggest challenges, I think, for people coming out of American evangelicalism from whichever segment is embracing a reformed understanding of the church, of the visible institutional church. That might be the sticking point because that gets you to things like baptism and the Lord's Supper and church discipline. And a lot of pastoral ministry is really taken up with trying to persuade people to move beyond the exciting parts, in a sense, the doctrines of grace, which are foundational, fundamental, but there's more, right, to being a member of a Reformed congregation. And you were sort of alluding to that, bearing one another's burdens and being a part of the daily, weekly, ordinary life of a congregation. Yeah, I think understanding that church is more about just what I need week to week. I think the individualism of America can make you think, do I need church this week? Do I need this? Do I need that? And having a proper understanding of the fellowship of believers is there are times when maybe, you know, strictly speaking, you could never say you don't need to be in church, but there are times when your fellow believers need you to be there for them, to exhort them to love and good works, to encourage them, to carry their burdens, to pray for them. A lot of people, you know, draw tremendous comfort when they're suffering to know that there's a church body praying for them. And I think all of those things really to help us to see beyond just my individual relationship with the church, but that we are in this together as a body of Christ, being built up by him for mutual edification with each part of the body, doing the work that's assigned to it for the benefit of all. You're up in the L.A. greater metropolitan area, which is who knows how many millions of people, probably something like seven or eight million people, and congested in some ways. Yet with all those people, a lot of the time is spent in that area in the car. And so that's kind of isolating. It's not uncommon for people to commute for one hour one way, which means so every day they go back and forth for two hours in their car, basically by themselves. And the church is, in that way, kind of a refuge. Here is a real, live, living, breathing community of people whom you're not just seeing, you know, after a while, you know, you see the same people at the same points in, in your journey. I mean, you could look over on the freeway. Oh, yeah, I see that guy every day. But you have no communion with him. In the church, these are people who love you and who, as you say, are praying for you, who are carrying your burdens and who are happy to see you when you come in. Who miss you when you're gone. Notice when you're not there and are concerned if they don't see you for a while, you know, that there are people caring for one another. Yeah, I think in a you know densely populated area it can be a temptation. I think, well, there are plenty of people around who can be lonely. But I think in the crush of traffic in L.A. and people commuting this way and that, there are people who just don't have any kind of connection. You know, they commute somewhere where they work with people. They don't live with them. They go home and they, you know, are living in communities where the people live and sometimes aren't working there. And so a lot of people passing each other and the church offers a real opportunity to have a community in a busy world that's moving past each other all the time. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So you are helping students to think about the 
parts of the pastoral ministry that don't get as much attention as some of the others. I mean, obviously, the thing we think about most often and we talk about most often, which is the most important part of pastoral ministry, and that's standing in the pulpit and proclaiming the word, which you do twice every Lord's Day, week by week. But there is more to pastoral ministry. Once you come out of the pulpit, you know, let's say on Sunday evening, there are still things to be done. Sure. There are house visits to be made. There are hospital calls to be made. There are counseling sessions to be held. And in just hanging out with your people, going to somebody's football game or somebody's play or whatever, attending a birthday party. So as you began pastoral ministry in 2010, 2011, how did you find that aspect of pastoral ministry? What was a surprise to you? Um, I haven't really given a thought what would have been a surprise. There's a lot of work to be done even in a small church. I think you can think sometimes a big church, of course, has a lot of pastoral needs, but a smaller church won't have as many. You do have things that can go in fits and starts. It can have really busy seasons where there's a lot of difficulty going on, a lot of you know stress, and then more peaceable times. So I guess that wasn't really a surprise to me. I think seminary did a good job of addressing the nature of pastoral ministry. Internships that I did gave me a good context for it. But it becomes a little bit different when they're your sheep and your responsibility. You can kind of learn as an intern, you can learn as a student, but they're not yet your responsibility. And you feel the seriousness of it when you take a call and the Lord's elders put their hands on you and say, the Lord has set you apart to care for this people in his name. These are the people for whom he's died, that he purchased with his blood. You're going to be accountable for how you care for them. And it's a joyful burden. I never want to make seminary students feel like it's just an oppressive burden. It's a very joyous burden, but it's a very serious thing. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to care for those who are Christ's sheep. But yeah, it does involve a lot more than just the public pulpit ministry. You know, a shepherd couldn't just feed his sheep and expect that all the work was done. There's a lot of the tending and the caring, finding out who's sick and needs to be healed, who's wounded and needs to be bound up, who's wandering and needs to be gathered in. That's a lot of effort. I think of Jacob explaining to Laban all the care he took as a shepherd and saying, you know, I sweated it out during the day. I froze at night. That's and... a good account of pastoral ministry. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. It, when they were harmed, I bore the loss myself. And, you know, I think he captures those things. You know, Paul, I think of too, when he describes all the sufferings he's had on behalf of the church, he ends after, you know, being stoned and shipwrecked and beaten. He talks about having on top of that, the anxiety for all the churches. And maybe what surprised me is how much you spend time worrying about the next thing that you have to do. You never really can finish the to-do list. You, yeah. <laughs> you check one thing off and you think, oh, there are three more people that need caring for. And so that anxiety, I think, is one thing that maybe surprised me how much time I spend anxious about the flock. When I was a student, I remember the experience of turning in all my exams and all my papers and all of that at the end of the semester, and they were all done, and I didn't owe anybody anything. And there was this period of time between you know, first semester and second semester, and I was a free man. And I look back to that time very fondly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because uh, you know, once you get out of school, you always owe somebody something. Mm-hmm. I could remember when I was interning at the Escondido URC, you know, when during the consistory meetings, you'd sit in on them. And then when it came to, you know, disciplinary issues and things like that, they would ask the interns to leave. And when I was a student, I always thought, I wish I could stay in here and hear about this, prepare myself. And now that I'm a minister on the consistory, sometimes I wish there was someone dismissing me when those <laughs> discipline issues came up. Um, yeah, you can always tell a first-time elder, you know, once you go through the discipline at the end of the meeting— you know, they have that look in their face. Yeah. Sorry, bud. There's nothing for it, really. You just have to go through yeah. that. It just yeah. is the way it is. So really what I hear you saying is that over the last six years, you have gradually been becoming a pastor. 
you're being formed by yeah, sure. the providence of God into a pastor. Yeah. I never like it when I hear people say, well, you know, seminary didn't prepare me to be a minister. It laid the foundation, but there's a practical work that goes on that you have to learn there in that particular household. I think it's not for nothing that Paul describes the church as a household of faith. And I think every family has similar characteristics. It has the fundamentals that make a family, but every family is different. And when you go to a particular church, you're going to a particular household of faith, and you have to understand how that household functions where it functions well, where it functions not so well, and learning to be part of that family and to care for that family, that household with the elders that you are with. Yeah, you grow a lot. I feel more comfortable teaching the part of the course I do now here. When I first started, I had very little experience. I felt like a little hypocritical telling people how to be a pastor with so little experience. But as it's gone on, I felt more comfortable. I've learned a lot through the ministry. And I remember Dr. Hal Jones always you know, told us in class that you have to have a godly discontent as a minister that you're not better. And so even the things that you get more comfortable with, preaching, you know where you are in the week in terms of your preparation. In the work you do, you do it more efficiently. You don't worry about it quite as much. But there always is that desire to be doing better at the things you're doing and always room for growth. One of the things I remember after ordination and you know, as time went on and responsibilities mount was just sleep. I was surprised at how difficult it was to get sleep. Pray when you wake up, you pray when, before you go to bed, and then do you wake up at two or three in the morning and you start thinking about this one and that one and, you know, this one is not, you know, attending or this one is ill or something. And so, as you say, as Paul says, you know, on top of all these other horrible things I've experienced, I still have the concern for all the churches. And he was aware of the things that were going on. You mentioned in passing your ordination. I was struck by the way you mentioned that, that I think for some people that leaves a greater mark than for others. I don't mean to diminish anyone's ordination, but sometimes you develop this really acute sense that I have been set apart and um, I wasn't really seeking this. And here I am and I'm invested with this joy, yes, but also this obligation. Yeah, I mean, I think of when Paul describes the church that Christ purchased with his blood, that he gave himself for the church. These are the people for whom he gave his life, and it's a serious thing that he's given them into your care. And sometimes you're tempted to think almost anybody else would have been better for this job than I am. But that responsibility is also a tremendous comfort to know that the king of the church knows what he's doing with those who are his, that if he's given you the calling to serve there, he doesn't give callings that it doesn't gift you to do well. So you have to work at these things, but you also take a tremendous comfort from our Lord knew what he was doing when he sent me to Torrance. That's not as difficult for you to remember during the good times, but it's particularly when things are troublesome in the church or difficult times, it's good to remember that the Lord has set you here for a purpose and for a time. He may call you elsewhere, might call you to do other things, but for this time he's called you and set you apart to this work and you come with his grant of authority. And so I think it's always a comfort and an encouragement to remember that he's decided to do this, even when it doesn't seem to me like it was the greatest <laughs> idea or he could have done better. But it's a comfort. And so I think always balancing, there is that true authority that the king has given, but he's given you authority to serve and to never let that sense of calling make you think you're better than other people. Or, or insufficient. 
I mean, yeah, who of us is sufficient too. for this? Of course, n- none. But as you say, those times when you feel like, what am I doing here? This is crazy. Why should I be doing this? Somebody else should be doing this. Then you have to remember, well, no, the Lord called you. The Lord set you apart and put you here. He knows what he's doing and he's not taking any advice from you. And his power is made manifest in weakness. And if I was the one doing all that I could be tempted to boast about it or take credit for it, but if anything is accomplished in the church, it's accomplished in spite of me by his grace. And then I can be assured once again that this is the Lord's work, not mine. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. You did not start out to be a pastor. When you graduated from Trinity Christian College, you went to law school. I did. And you're still a member of the bar. I am, yeah. But at some point in those years, as you were working at the law, you began to reconsider your vocation. So walk us through that process. What was that like? Because you're not the first person to be a second career pastor and you won't be the last. So it may well be that a listener is thinking, well, you know, I've kind of been thinking about that myself and I don't know how to think about it. My favorite comment is when people will say, oh, you went to law school first and then became a minister, just like John Calvin. And I think, yeah, just like John Calvin. (laughs) Um, The Lord was very good to me in that he brought me along very gradually. I had always wanted, since I had been in high school, wanted to go and become a lawyer. That was sort of my focus going to college. That's what I did coming out of college, went to law school, became an attorney. And then, you know, after those years of kind of bumping around from church to church, place to place, getting settled once again and thinking, okay, I want to be involved in the life of the church, give my time to the church, and was helping out with the high school youth group. I kind of thought this will be a good way for me to serve the church. And through that, God opened the door for me to do a variety of things in the church and continue to set opportunities in front of me to serve. They needed an apologetics teacher to teach 12th grade catechism apologetics. And you're an attorney, you know, you might be good at this. Will you do it and help us get this curriculum started? I remember telling Reverend Donovan, I'll help out and I'll do it for the first year, but I'm not going to commit to beyond that. And I ended up doing that for 10 years, (laughs) worked with the youth group for 10 years, became a deacon at Escondido. And so I think the Lord slowly but surely put things in front of me until I got to the point where I was enjoying all the things I was doing as a volunteer at church more than I was enjoying my work and began to seriously consider whether the Lord was calling me to pastoral ministry. I was too reformed to think I was going to hear a still small voice telling me to do it. But in God's providence, we had a number of ministers associated with the Escondido URC Church that had done that same transition. 
Christian, Reverend Kaminga, Reverend Voss, Reverend Donovan. And so they were all excellent resources to talk to about thinking about making a second career of the pastoral ministry. And I remember Reverend Voss conversation with him very vividly where he said, I was unsure about whether I should quit and go this route. But as soon as I started seminary, I knew I'd made the right decision. And that was very much how I've felt. I've never really looked back. And so I quit my law practice in 2006 and started at Westminster after about six years in practice. Did you give serious thought to any other seminaries besides this one? No. All right. Well, I thought I'd ask in case that you— No, my dad made me come here. <laughs> no, I know, no, I never I never did. And in part, that was because I knew the seminary well. I knew the faculty members well. I knew that this was a place where I would get a solid, good, rigorous academic theological training by men who love the Lord and love their students who are pastors as well as scholars. And having grown up around the seminary, seeing it, you know, actually grow up— seeing it be built and remembering when it was over in San Marcos and everything. It really was not anything I really thought about seriously. I knew I wanted to come to Westminster. How is ministry different from the law? Um, you can dump clients you don't like in the law. <laughs> you can't dump clients in the ministry. No, I mean, more seriously, the law is you are trying to do the best you can to look out for your client's best interests. And you have a responsibility to advocate for your client. And that is in one sense, depends on the client, whether that's a joyful task or not. I guess the similarity would be in the ministry, you advocate for the Lord, and that's always a joyous task to be able to bring people good news. In the law, you don't always bring people good news. Sometimes you're just trying to stop the hemorrhaging or minimize the damage as much as you can. But the Lord always offers a positive way forward for people, offers them life and happiness and hope in the world to come and comfort in this life. And so in that sense, I think there are similarities. I know early on when I preached, people would say, it sounds like you're making a case for this text. <laughs> and so I wanted to be more of a preacher than an advocate, an attorney for the Lord. But I think the law taught me a lot of good skills about how to think, how to argue a point, how to think about where your argument might be weak or where people might ask questions and be able to anticipate questions that are going to be had and answer them to think clearly through something and try to be able to concisely explain it to people. So I'm very thankful. I don't regret at all a late start to the ministry. I think, you know, God knew I wasn't ready for that. And I think it's been a tremendous benefit to me to have gone the route that I've gone. And your younger brother is a minister too. He just took a call to Pennsylvania. He did. I just had a chance to visit with him and his family, and that was a real joy. We're endeavoring to confuse everyone, though, because my dad is a URC minister, and so am I, and so is my brother. My dad is William Robert. I'm William. My brother's Robert. So no one ever knows which minister they're talking to. <laughs> and my brother is younger than I am, but he went to seminary before I did. So we're trying to confuse everybody in the URC. But yeah, he just recently took a call to Zeltenreich United Reformed Church in New Holland, Pennsylvania, and is enjoying his time out there very much. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. How do you think, since you started, has your ministry matured? I think you've already touched on it, but elaborate a little bit. For example, when you started, you said some people perceived you as kind of making a case, but now your preaching is more pastoral. What does that mean? Put some flesh on that. You get to know your congregation better. The better you get to know them, the better you understand where they tend to struggle. Where are their, you know, the things that they tend to be afraid of? What are the things that they tend to be nervous about? And you can, you know, particularly minister the word to their circumstances. They get to know you better. There's less of the nervousness of 
presenting the sermon. There's less of the nervousness of not knowing how far along you are in sermon preparation. I remember early on, I always felt like I spun my wheels. I didn't know when to stop reading commentaries or articles. You know, when I had a feel for when I've done enough exegesis and I can start on the preparation of the sermon itself. Just a more comfortable with your style of preaching. So from the public ministry side, and then just getting a little more adept at how to conduct a visit. You know, you don't want it to be antisocial, but at the same time, it's more than a social call. And that can be kind of hard to turn it from a social call to a spiritual call to talk about things of substance, to try to know how to talk to someone who's facing a possibly fatal diagnosis, how to talk to them about their assurance of their salvation without, you know, doing it in an indelicate manner. You know, you're about to die. Are you ready for that? Um, You know, thinking how to have those kinds of conversations. So I think all of that, you mature, you find a little more, you get your feet under you, you know what's going on in classes meetings and broader assemblies of the church. That's a great point. some of those things. There's a part of church life and the reality of pastoral ministry that sometimes gets overlooked, and that is your relationship to, as we say, the URCs, the broader church, or as in the PCA or the OPC, they might say the higher courts, so that you have obligations to go to classes meetings or what might be called presbytery meetings, as well as your local consistory or session meetings. And then you have a responsibility to go to synod meetings. So you have obligations that come out of those associations as well. Yeah, I'm a church visitor. What does that mean? Explain that. Church visitors, according to our church order, you have to have at least every two years, two experienced office bearers come out and see to it that your church is doing everything according to the church order to admonish anybody who's been negligent in some of their duties to help in any way you can in the governance of the church and answer any questions or be of any assistance to the churches. Sometimes there are problems in the congregation that, you know, surface when you come to visit. And so you might set up a meeting with people in the congregation or maybe the congregation itself to try to mediate some issues, to try to keep things from getting out of hand. Yeah, there are routine visits that are just these kind of checks on the ordinary visits, but then you can have, you know, extraordinary visits where they ask the church visitors to come to help them in some issue with the church. So we've been involved in that as well. Your law background might have been somewhat helpful. You might have some idea about mediation and helping people reconcile and find common ground and that sort of thing. Yeah, my practice was very client intensive. I had a lot of different clients, a lot of turnover. So you work with a lot of different people. You kind of learn what the different kinds of people are and that there are some people that are easier to help see things the way they ought to see them. And some people it's much more difficult. And I got to learn how to deal with a lot of different people. And so that's definitely been a help as I've come into the ministry. You are active on social media. I don't know all the places where you are, but you are on Twitter. Yes. So what are the pros and cons of, first of all, social media, and secondly, about being a pastor on social media. Yeah, it's interesting. I get the opportunity to talk to the seminarians about how to think maybe about our digital conduct. I don't presume to do it perfectly, but I do think, you know, there are plenty of admonitions in the scripture about your public life and the example you set. And so I think ministers in particular have to think about that. Sometimes I worry that I waste too much time on it. I know that there are people that cancel it because they feel like it's consuming too much of their time. And almost every time I'm about ready to do that, then I'll get some (laughs) contact on Facebook or something that will help me to see, yeah, this is a way that people can get a hold of me. And so I try not to post controversial things. I try to post things that are edifying and just, you know, I try to recognize that the thoughts I have don't need to be shared immediately with the entire world. They can wait a little while to make sure they're good ideas and worth sharing. I think that's the danger of this medium 
you can instantly share things, and it's not always a good thing to share your instant reaction to something. <laughs> so, you know, they used to say if you write an angry letter, put it in a drawer for a few days, and I don't know what the digital equivalent of that, but I try to sleep on it and think about whether that's a good idea or not. Put it in your draft folder. Yeah, I've deleted far more than I've posted, I think. Does it help you keep track of what's happening in the culture and keep connected with what people are thinking, what their concerns are, and the way they're looking at the world? It does. I think Twitter is a good defense of the doctrine of total depravity. <laughs> good example of it. Right. right. You know, it is, as one person said, I think the bathroom wall of the internet. So there are those aspects of it. I think it does help to show, I think, in a fallen world, what people will say when they're anonymous and don't feel the consequences of it. I think you see how antisocial social media actually reveals us to be. That tells us something about who we are. It is also an opportunity to see what different people are feeling and thinking. I think it gives you access to, you know, thinking of this election. You get to see how everybody's reacting to it, whether you agree with them or not. But I think it's important to know that all of those people are probably represented in our churches and that even if you don't share the same fear that they may be experiencing by a result, it's important to know that they are afraid and to be able to say Jesus is the answer to our fears, to calming our fears and knowing that when the foundations of the earth tremble, it's God who holds steady its pillars. And to try to be able to do that. So it's important to see, I think, how the culture functions, to see those things and to understand something of the world in which we live so that we can apply the scripture to the people around us. Pastor Godfrey, what is the thing you hope every Lord's Day or, you know, after the evening service, you send your congregation off and some of them you'll see during the week, but some of them you won't. So what is the thing that you hope that they are thinking and believing and trusting as they lay their heads down at night to go to sleep? That I am the Lord's and the Lord is coming soon. I think the New Testament, it seems to me, highlights the fact that Christians are always to live with the eager expectation that the return of Christ is imminent. And I think we too often allow ourselves to think it's a far off thing that's going to happen years and years from now. And I think what I want them to understand is that he's coming soon and that he's coming for us to rescue us. The catechism talking about what's the benefit of the resurrection. With uplifted head throughout my persecutions, I await the very one who died for me, who is coming for me, who's going to bring me with him to glory, who's going to put an end to enemies. I think a lot of the concern and anxiety you experience for your people as a minister is a recognition that there's actually very little you can do to help them, and they need the Lord. And so our hope is always that the Lord is coming, and he's coming soon. And if you belong to him, it will be a great day. And to live in the light of that hope. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.